Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CrocCast podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I'm joined by Matt of Arboreal Obscurities. Matt, Hello. welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So as always, I'd like to get uh, started with uh, how you first got into reptiles and kind of your career path up to this point. Oh, um, all right. So I first got into reptiles. I mean, I think like most of us, we were all little kids growing up, digging up salamanders or whatever we could find. And that at a young age kind of sparks excitement. Uh, growing up, I wasn't really allowed to keep reptiles or pets at home. So I just run out in the wild and play with whatever I could. And I got really into uh, like paleontology, actually. And that was a way that I could, I guess, like uh, pass time and try to break rocks and dig stuff up. Never found anything, but it was really interesting. And then as I got older and started to get my own space, move out of the house, work my own jobs. Um, I don't know. I just go into like a local pet shop all the time and just look at the reptiles and want to. I was definitely that guy that like wanted to hold stuff, wanted to ask questions. And uh, I started like uh, probably like most people do. I really started basic, actually, but, uh, you know, leopard geckos, corn snakes, small colubrids. And then very quickly, I think I realized that reptiles are fairly simple to keep if you're following the guidelines. And I wanted something a little more challenging. So it didn't take long before leopard geckos and corn snakes became monitor lizards and boyega and stuff that everyone said was really difficult to keep. I guess I, would, I just wanted more of a challenge. And I never really had interest in breeding necessarily when I started out. I just wanted to keep reptiles. They were little living dinosaurs. Um, and I was having a lot of fun. And then I started working for that shop that I used to go into all the time. And while working through that shop, um, that's actually what got me into Boyga. We would get mangroves then. And I got really interested in the mangroves, but I was always told, you know, be very cautious. And these are super dangerous and they don't make good pets. So, of course, I think I gravitated towards that. I wanted to see if I could make them good pets. I wanted to see how dangerous they were. And I don't know. I, uh, I feel like I picked up on the Boyga pretty well. And then what started the, the path to breeding was... I started keeping um, some Boygan agriceps, the black-headed cat snakes. And when I started keeping them, I remember telling the owner of the shop that I was working in that I think I'm going to try to breed them. And I will never forget this. Uh, he he kind of laughed a bit and just said, good luck. You know, no, Nobody breeds these things. Nobody wants them. Um, a, a pointless endeavor. And I don't know, something about them. Boygan are just so different. And I really wanted to try. And I got, I went about a year keeping them, didn't have any production or anything. I really didn't know what I was doing. And one female who was separated from the male, she was like a wild caught import. I'd had her for probably about a year. One day I randomly went to take her out to show a buddy and she was laying eggs in a spot in her tank. It was a retained sperm clutch and they weren't fertile, but that was so exciting to me that I immediately went on the scour for different species, um, a male to be able to pair with her. And a year later, I got really lucky. Um, you know, I, I guess I'll give myself a little credit. There was a little bit of with Boyga, if, if you keep them right, they'll, they'll kind of do things for you. But I kept for about another year, produced my first clutch in agriceps. That was, I think, three years or so now. And then from there, uh, just got into more species and now work with 
about five or six different species of Boyega, and then have kind of just carried on from there with anything else that's interested me, rather it be the, the rat snakes, the scrub pythons, the monitors. So, yeah, I guess, I guess it's kind of a traditional story at the same time. I did get more into it because a lot of people were telling me I couldn't do something, and it was fun to, to try to see if I could. And then I, I guess I got lucky, and I've been successful working with what I've been keeping now. Yeah. Uh, first, uh, turn me on to you was uh, your scrub pythons, since I really like scrub pythons and I keep a few of my own. So uh, you want to talk about your work with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't work with a lot, a lot of scrub pythons. So if anyone's like looking to get into breeding scrubs, I would say my, my first rule of thumb or piece of advice would be make sure they're old enough. The hard thing about breeding scrubs um, or working with them in general is it's not a size kind of thing that matters with scrub pythons like it is a lot of snakes. It's definitely an age and a maturity thing. So I've had, you know, old scrubs, I've had young scrubs. They're all, they're all great, but I didn't have any reproduction success until this year, uh, 2022, when um, the girl I was seeing at the time, she actually had an older female. It was about eight years old. Uh, Marauke. And then I had an older male that was about seven years old. And we had never really tried to pair or do anything with them just because scrubs can also be temperamental. They're known for eating each other, kind of like olive pythons. It's a dangerous game to play. But both these animals were so calm and mellow. Uh, you could pull them, reach right into these big enclosures and just grab any loop of them and just drag them out. And they'd just wrap up on you. The sweetest snakes. So I wasn't too worried about them interacting with one another um we did have an oops the year prior we had another older male who was really really touchy really sensitive and he did fine with that female quite a few times you know he'd be fine in the enclosure with her but every now and then he'd pop a shot off at her if she touched him and spooked him or something so we were a little cautious of that and we we ended up pairing them and we were both at work and she had came come home before I did. And the female had actually killed the male, which is, you know, it's a part of it, but it sucks because seven years of raising a male is a long time to have the female just decide to choke him out one day. But the way that yeah. everything was set up, um, I think he definitely, he had come down for water or something and he must've bumped her, which caused her to kind of like rear up and see what it was. And he was so sensitive that I think that caused him to back up I think he struck her and she just grabbed him and that was the end of it. But this last year we uh we actually cycled the pair and we we kind of didn't think anything of it. We saw we saw locks, but if you talk to anybody who breeds scrubs, most people will tell you it's it's really difficult to actually get production out of them even if they lock. So we cooled them, we cycled them, we took them off food, we fed them back up. And we saw some locks and then a couple months later, we were seeing swelling. We didn't know if it was just ovulation or, or what it was, but this female hadn't eaten in, in months and she kept growing. And then a few months later, big clutch of eggs dropped out. Um, and, you know, a few months later from that, we have baby scrubs hatching. Um, we're no longer together. So unfortunately, like that project isn't a, a core project that I have because in separating, we had to split projects a little bit. So I took a lot of the younger scrubs 
she took the adults and it was a cross country move. So I didn't want to move or disrupt eggs or anything. So I actually just left the incubator, the eggs, everything with her. That is now a, a project that she's furthering forward, but I'm still working with some stuff that I'm raising up now. And hopefully a few years down the road, we'll get to try again. I'm working with Sarong Barnex and then patternless Merauki's and some patternless Highlands. But yeah, I don't, I don't care what kind of scrub it is. I think they're, they're badass snakes. So if anyone's going to keep a big python, I'd rather keep a scrub than, you know, not to knock them, but a berm, a retake, any other big python. Yeah. Yeah, I have a two that they're sold to me as Marukis, but just look at the head scalation. They might be tandem bars by the look of them, uh, especially the oh, male. Start, starting, yeah, especially the male. He's starting to get that really classic patternless golden yellow on him. That's usually a pretty good but, sign. The only ones, yeah. the only scrub that I think that, and I think it's really just because of size. Uh, I like scrubs for being a larger, longer python. I think the only ones that I, I probably won't get into are like the Waminas. And I love the Waminas, but they're a little bit on the smaller side. So honestly, if you're looking to start working with scrubs, that's probably a great place because you can get them bigger a little quicker and they'll probably breed a little bit younger. But some of those big, big animals, they just, they take forever. And you have to be patient to make anything happen in the future with them. Yeah. So uh, back to the boy guy, you mentioned you have uh, uh, the blackhead cats and uh, what are some other uh, boy guy you have? So the two species I breed the most are the blackheaded cat snakes, the nigriceps, and then dog tooth cat snakes, boyga cynodon. This year, um, I will be pairing some Boyga cyania. They were some young ones that I've been keeping for a few years now that I got from Dan Maliri. And then uh, mangroves, Malaysian mangroves. I have Jaspidia right now. That's the Jasper's cat snake. Um, Boyga benculuensis, the benculu cat snake. And then I was working with Gemacincta. An unfortunate story to that one. Um, I had a trio of 100% head albinos that I had brought over from Russia. Shipment was really rough in the process. By the time I got them, they were just in really poor health. Um, ended up losing two of them pretty quickly out of the trio, which is unfortunate. And then um, I ended up selling the the last one just at this last Vegas Expo because, I don't know, I, I would rather that project go to someone who wants to take the time to create hets again. I'm not big on morphs. Uh, I think the big reason I work with Boyga is they're they're naturally pretty colubrid. They don't really need any kind of genetic mutations. I really just picked up the albino group to see if I could produce some albino gems because I don't think anyone in the U.S. has reproduced them yet. And yeah, losing those couple kind of sucked. So I backed out of that project a little bit. But I do work with uh, with four or five species still. I breed two annually, and hopefully after this year, I'll add a, a third species that's a repetitive breeder for me. Nice. So uh, you also mentioned you have uh, monitors as well. Uh, what sort of monitors do you have? A little bit of everything. I guess, once again, like I, the pinnacle, of course, if you ask any monitor guy, has a croc monitor. Um, and I'm working there. Space is actually the real big thing with that. But I work with a little bit of everything, more so some stuff that makes great pets, some stuff that has a bad reputation. Um, I guess some of my favorites that I keep are my Nile monitors. 
which to most people are, you know, a junk monitor. They're a hundred bucks or so at pretty much any pet shop. They got bad attitudes, everybody says. Um, but they're a very smart, smart monitor lizard. I compare them to like uh, to water monitors, honestly. They're kind of like Africa's version of the water monitor. They get nice and large. They're very bold and confident, but they're also not afraid to, to tell you off. I will say for anyone who wants to keep Niles, don't be afraid of them. They're more whippy than they are, you know, bitey on you, which like water monitors, everybody keeps. And that's kind of funny to me because they'll bite you before they'll whip you. And the teeth cause a lot more harm than the tail. But I do, I keep water monitors, um, keep a pair of Nile monitors. I've got peach throat. Um, I have savannas just because I've had them forever. And then funny enough, after this call, um, I'm going to pick up a Dorianis uh, blue-tailed monitor. So I'll probably work with the blue-tails for a little while. And then that's kind of, I'm kind of segueing myself into getting some croc monitors, I think, with the blue-tails because they're, they're kind of like a smaller version of that. And then I really want to get into working with tree monitors, honestly. Gotcha. Uh, so outside of the monitors, the scrubs, and the boy goat, are there any other species you keep? Yeah, so I primarily kind of tell everyone I, I work with boyga as far as snakes go. Um, and I tell any of like my, my python friends, like, I work with scrubs. But it's actually boyga and then Orthriophis. That's uh, the beauty snake family. I keep, uh, I, oh, I breed blue beauties. And then I keep Ridley Eye, the Malaysian cave dwelling. I'm raising some of those up now. I'm keeping the Taiwanese beauties, the 100 flower rat snakes. I'll probably get into the Chinese beauties soon, just some calico stuff. And then I do have a couple oddball projects on the sides. I'm working with Amazon tree boas. Um, what else? What else? Red-tailed green rat snakes. And for the most part, that's kind of it. Um, I just like the weird old world rat snakes and old world colubrids. And then, uh, yeah, the big lizards. Yeah. So, uh, you, you've named yourself uh, Arboreal Obscurities. Uh, so I'm guessing you just like, in general, less commonly kept arboreal stuff. You want to go in on that at all? Um, yeah, sure. So, to me, I have some some common stuff. It's not really project stuff, but I keep some Arizona Mountain King snakes. I have a pair of oak decorn snakes. I've got some little like pet stuff uh, that I enjoy. I like weird geckos, and I don't really ever post that stuff. But uh, I keep like some some strange little stuff. But for me, it's if it's common, and there's a lot of knowledge out there on it already, you can pretty much pull up a care guide on every website it's probably not going to be as interesting to me just because you can learn so much about it so fast. And I think I, I like more of the time release learning where I like being someone who can sit down and watch an animal and observe it and maybe pick up new things that people don't know about them or things that can help people further keeping them. So if it's like obscure, if it's weird, misunderstood or overlooked, uh, it's probably going to catch my attention first. And then I don't know something about arboreal animals Things that are active and want to climb and you get to see them while you're keeping them or put them in a cool planted enclosure or something because they're not going to dig everything up. For me, I think that's what gets me. Um, growing up, when I thought about like the rainforest or the jungle, 
I thought about big lush plants and these like dense canopies and things living in the trees. I didn't think about things living under the leaf litter or in a, a rock cave as much. And so I think I just gravitate towards anything that's going to climb or be up in the tree where it's a little more appreciated and visible. Uh, honestly, all the stuff that climbs as well tends to be far prettier in coloration. I know that's subject to debate because I've got lots of friends that love the earthy brown stuff and think that, you know, bright green, yellow and blue snake is ugly. I, on the other hand, kind of feel the total opposite. I love them all, but something about like those, those bright, vibrant colors, almost playing as like an aposomatic role, but, but not, you know, they're more so it's a camouflage because they are up in these canopies with these bright flowers and leaves. To me, that's, that's something that's really interesting and cool. And I think it's worth gravitating towards a little bit more. Yeah, the way you say that, it's almost surprising you don't have like paradise flying snakes or something like that. I have thought about it many times. <laughs> I, I love paradise flying snakes. I love like all the dendrolaphus. Um, there's a lot of our, I mean, I used to keep green tree pythons. Uh, they just weren't as active as I would have liked to enjoy. And they're, they're great snakes, don't get me wrong. Uh, I got lots of friends that do work with them. But I don't know, I guess, again, like, here here's something to note. Like, all my arboreal stuff, for the most part, will eat birds, eggs, or rodents. I do get a little wary keeping things that want to eat lizards more. One, because I don't necessarily want to breed and colonize lizards that I then just have to feed off. Um, and I don't want to buy lizards from like a pet store and stuff just because they're all you know it's it's pretty much all wild caught cuban anoles from florida or asian house geckos or something and i don't know it's hard for me to spend a lot of money on a pair of snakes and then have to feed them something that could be just potentially loading them with parasites so i have nothing yeah. against feeding lizards as far as like the the food chain goes but i don't know it's it's almost like a I wouldn't buy a brand new nice sports car and take it off-roading. I'm not I don't want to mess up something that, you know, I just put a lot of effort into to finding or spent a lot of money to purchase. Yeah. That's fair. I, I enjoy them from my distance. I enjoy them when we get them in the shop and I feed them feed them their lizards there and then find someone to take them. Yeah. So uh you mentioned you're, you're going to go pick up a blue tail monitor. So, but what is your, uh, what is the next big thing you're hoping to do with your collection? Um, well, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that these green cat snakes go this year. Just because I've never produced them. I really like them. So I would love to see a clutch of eggs from those guys. Um, I, I just hatched out some nigriceps. I might take a little break from them this year. As far as big projects, uh, I think it would be cool to see some reproduction from the Nile monitors this year. My male and my female are of size. I haven't tried to pair them or anything, but the female's starting to drop, you know, slugs in her water bowl and stuff. So it's just, she's big enough, she's ready, and she's she's producing the eggs anyways. So I think pairing the Niles would be cool because I've never reproduced monitor lizards. I've just kept them. So that to me would be a big project this year. And uh, surprisingly enough, I've gotten a, uh, pretty deep into plants this last year and I'm trying to propagate and cultivate a lot of tropical plants and uh, just more rare stuff that I'm interested in. So 
aside from the green cat snakes and aside from the niles i think my biggest projects are like plant production and then I'm working with like a lot of carnivorous stuff so a lot of different pitcher plants and i'm gonna try and breed mint terribilis this year the poison dart frogs i do keep those as well although i don't do a lot of frogs so that would be cool to see some tadpoles from and i think if i get into another project um i'm looking for like jansen i the black-tailed rat snakes uh, or i would like to still get a project going for my hundred flower rats that would be a big project for me Aside from that, it's kind of yes. business as usual. This will, this will probably be not a slow year for production, but there probably won't be too much new project or production this year, at least for me. Gotcha. So, uh, what kind drew you to keep in and try and propagate those tropical plants? Um. Well. I know we're, this is going to be an audio call. You can kind of see behind me, though. There's a, it's it's stuff like this, and of course you won't be able to see it in the podcast. But like you know, plants like this, yeah, are, are they just massive? These huge, cool leaves. I mean, the leaf looks like a sea turtle. Uh, it's as big as my torso. Just cool stuff that, uh, for me, setting up an animal in an enclosure and getting it to acclimate is one thing. But after acclimation, I want to look into an enclosure and I want to feel like I'm looking into a piece of where they come from. And in order to do that the right way, I think you have to have a good understanding of the, the, the things that they're living on or they're living with and being able to look at different ranges and see what type of tropical plants are growing with, let's say like that Dorianus. Um, I'm going to want to pick things that are, you know, more so plants coming from like Indonesia, New Guinea, Australia, uh, stuff that it's going to be living with. I want to have a good understanding of that so that I can plant that tank and let that animal live more naturally. I think that the hobby is really growing out of the old shoebox and 10 gallon method. And yeah. even going out of like the rack style method a little bit. And we're starting to see a lot more of the smaller collections with better setups and better husbandry. And so I think that's really what's drawn me to it. One, I wanna be able to help people better understand how to plant a tank or set up something that's a little more self-sustaining. Um, I wanna be able to, to gift stuff away to, to friends who wanna try something out. And I just wanna be able to make enclosures look better. Uh, my, my big goal actually this year is to take a lot of stuff that's already in adequate size caging or enclosures and be able to upgrade into something that just really gives them more space and is well planted and and they can disappear into a small piece of jungle like they would in the wild and to me that's going to be more satisfying to look at it's going to be more rewarding to see behaviors change and i think overall like it's just going to be better for their longevity their health um their mental stimulation so that's really what's drawn me into the plants is just being able to see the animals live alongside them and to have more of a natural look to, to all my setups. Yeah. So some of them I've noticed a lot is that uh, people who keep a lot of reptiles also tend to be uh, avid herpers as well. So mm -hmm. uh, do you do a lot of herping? I do. 
Um, I'm in a very good state for it. If I'm being honest, Arizona is loaded with reptiles because it's the only thing that survives out here. So herping is awesome, but you know, eight, nine months out of the year, it's kind of dead. It's either, it's either too cold. Um, because believe it or not, like our, our winters do get pretty chilly. So a lot of the reptiles will start to go dormant more. So, you know, like November, late October, we're kind of getting into that season. And they won't wake back up until April or so. Um, and then after they come out of that dormancy, we have so many hot months that it's either too cold and they're denned up or it's too hot and they're denned up. So unfortunately, I wish I could road cruise like friends do on the East Coast of mine, but you don't see a lot of that here. And if you do, you have to go out nine, ten o'clock at night and catch the couple hours where those animals are maybe warming up on the pavement because the day was cold or, or, or whatever. Um, or you have to spend a very hot afternoon on the side of a mountain flipping rocks to find them denned in somewhere. And that's brutal. So the only real good portion of herping out here is like when we have our monsoon season. And up until this year, we went three, four years in what felt like a drought. It wasn't really any monsoons. It was a lot of dust storms and things like that. So the herping was kind of weak. Um, for me, I, I'm a little bit luckier because I have friends with Game and Fish, and I have friends who are really avid herpers that will they drop a pin or some coordinates to, to go to a better spot um, if I'm looking for somewhere new. But there's a lot of herpers out here, and there's a lot of spots that because of that get kind of washed out because they get overherped, which is unfortunate. But I, I definitely do yeah. my fair share of herping. Um, I keep a few species that are native that I have herped. Um, I, we don't take anything from the wild, of course, like that's out under a rock or something. But uh, the rule of thumb out here for most herpers is if you're road cruising it, it's okay to collect. Um, and if you're not road cruising it, then you should just leave it alone, which is kind of how the rules that I live by. But I do uh, keep and work with lyre snakes, leer snakes. They're very much like a North American boiga or kind of like a Toxicodryas or something. And then some alligator lizards. We have one species of alligator lizard that's from out here. The Arizona mountain king snakes, of course, are native. Um, those are not field collected. Those were like gifts from someone who accidentally reproduced them. But I do a lot of herping. I try to leave most of that stuff alone. Uh, it's more so just like go out and cruise and check things out. Finding Gila monsters is awesome, but this is a very, very, very strict state for them because they're so heavily protected. So as awesome as it is to find them, it's also kind of sad because you can't even go near them. Even if they're sitting in the middle of the road, you know, it's a, it's a pretty hefty find if you try to move them or even coax them off the road because you're obstructing their natural path and game and fish will be very upset with you. If you do anything yeah. to all any directions, even if you see a car coming, they'd rather you just leave it alone, which blows my mind, but you got to follow the rules. <laughs> so um, have you ever done herping in any other places other than, other than uh, Arizona? I have. Um, I've done a little herping in New Mexico. I have done herping in California. I've herped Utah just a little bit um, for the most part the west coast while i was living in virginia it was snowing and frozen the entire time so 
found a couple things here and there, uh, like a DOR, black rat snake, um, lots of frogs and amphibians. But unfortunately, I moved back to Arizona just when the spring was kind of starting to hit. So I didn't get to like actually get out and do much herping. I had some trips planned while I was out there. I wanted to go to North Carolina and try to do a hellbender hunt. But no, nice. um, I'm a pretty avid herper, but I don't get out as much as I would like to. Gotcha. Let's see here. So, uh, with your like old world uh, colubrids uh, outside of the Boiga, um, like uh, your red tail green rat snakes, uh, you want to talk about those at all? The Ganyasoma? That's a that's a really yeah. cool genus. I think that one that's like really overlooked because um, there are so many cool species in that genus. The red tail green rats uh, also came from Dan Maleri. So DM Exotics, to me, if I'm going to buy import animals nowadays, there's like really one guy that I trust really buying that stuff from. And, and that's the source. If anybody's looking to get into Boiga or weird rat snakes or just obscure snakes in general, Ganyasoma, Pitaeus, Boiga, you name it. Um, Dan Maleri is kind of the guy. He's been doing it for so long and he's got a really good report card. And so I didn't really think about getting into many Ganyasoma until recently because they usually do come in on a fresh import and they're really rough and they're really sensitive to becoming like shocked in acclimation. And due to that, like they can become really difficult to reproduce. I just picked up a pair of long-term captives from him. So I'm hoping that something goes with that this year, but I want to get into more. Uh, I'd like to get into the rain rat snakes. I used to keep rhino rat snakes, which are a Ganyasoma. That's a uh, Belangari. And hopefully Margaritatis becomes something of the hobby at some point. But there's just a lot of cool species in that genus. Um, and they're, they're really smart, really intelligent rat snakes, which that's what I like about the beauties as well. They're really inquisitive. They're really observant. They're really active. Um, they do carry a bit of personality to them. Now, most people will tell you like the personality is angry, but for me, like all, all my stuff for the most part has calmed down tremendously and is really, really good animals to work with. And so that's, uh, that's something that I definitely want to delve more into. Um, and then there's a few other like just cooler, big-bodied rat snakes. I do like that the red-tailed green rats, um, they'll puff their throat, almost like a puffing snake will. That, to me, is very interesting, because any snake that's good about making itself look bigger and more bold, um, that's just such a cool defensive behavior. And there's not a, a whole lot of animals that do that that aren't very dangerous. So that's something that I think is cool. You get to see a little bit of an outside-of-the-box characteristic in an animal that's still just as enjoyable to keep as, you know, Texas rat snake, a corn snake, a king snake. Gotcha. Yeah, that whole uh, intelligence thing is kind of what, I don't know if it's intelligence or not, but it's kind of something I've, as I've kept scrubs, I didn't know it was going in, but as I kept scrubs, kind of noticed it as, as soon as I walk in the door, all their heads perk up and just start following me around the room pretty much. Right. Even if, if it's like two days after a fed, I'm just like, I know you're not hungry, but you're still just constantly following me around. Yeah, no, the, the scrubs are, people may hate if I say this, but they're probably the smartest Python that I've ever come across. 
And like, and that's comparable to, to retics, right? Like everybody says that retics are like so intelligent, but if you hold a retic in one hand and you hold a scrub in the other, you can like physically see the difference in intelligence and inquisitive behavior. The retic is like kind of right in between what you'd get out of like a scrub and a berm. It's inquisitive, but it's like kind of lazy inquisitive. And the scrubs have kind of that <laughs> active inquisitive. That sounds dead on from my personal experience. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you hold a retic and you see the tongue flicking and you know the brain's working and you know that it's it's thinking and it's kind of problem solving for itself. But it's still very trusting or tolerant. And something about the natural behaviors of scrub pythons where you can have a really mellow one and it's going to keep moving and it's going to be flicking and it's going to be trying to climb or reach the next height that it can because it wants to see what's up there or if that's a new anchor spot for it. And in all that time, you can still tell that it's almost like it's got one eye looking back at you to make sure that it that it's safe and that it's it's not going to be bothered or they demand respect in that way, right? So you can't just be completely relaxed with handling your scrubs. You you have to yeah. pay a little bit of mind to their actual behaviors because a scrub can go from zero to 100 in the blink of an eye, whereas typically any other intelligent snake, like you know rat snake or a, a retic, it's gonna go from zero to, to 20. You know, it might, you might spook it or something. It's a bit of a wind up. Give you a look. Yeah, and then it'll you give it 10 seconds and it'll go right back to what it was doing. A scrub, you know, you, you spook it or something and it stacks up on you. You're going to have to take a little time to, to show that animal that it's okay again because, like, they're smart enough to know maybe I shouldn't trust this. And I don't know. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, so what are some other snakes that you keep besides the Ganyasoma and the uh... – scrubs that you consider to be particularly intelligent um let's see if i go through my collection right now um i, I think i'm going to get into working with baron's racers a little bit i've got a couple really really close friends that breed them uh actually three of my closest friends work with them and breed them and absolutely love them and i've been there while they've hatched out of their eggs um i've been around plenty of the adults they're also another very intelligent animal you can watch them think uh in the enclosure which again is really cool but there's a lot of variety in them uh, and i'm keeping some currently that are i'm really just housing them i've got some blue beauties to send to my buddy Corey dixon um his page is sir hiss on instagram if anyone's looking for like captive bred barons but I've got some stuff that I'm holding on to for him because I've got some blue beauties to ship out to him and a neotropical puffing snake. And he picked up some that were more so on this side of the, the States. So I'm going to house those until I ship him a package and then I'll send them with them. And so since I've been keeping them, I've been working with them a bit and I really see myself gravitating towards that a bit more. Uh, so the, the Baron's racers are a cool one. Uh, I keep a, I keep a pet berm. I keep a pet guy on a boa. I've got some oddball lizards. Like I said, I've got uh, like the dark frogs and stuff, but I've got some Southern California alligator lizards. I've got clown tree frogs and hourglass tree frogs. I have uh, a few native species like the leer snakes, the pyros. I've got 
regal ringneck snakes, um, Sonoran night snakes. What else? What else? I was working with false water cobras a little bit. I just recently got out of that project. I've really kind of narrowed things down. Uh, Malagasy cat-eyed snakes are another one that I keep. Anything that's like a weird colubrid, either similar to Boyga or a, a weird rat snake that's kind of similar to like the beauty snakes is mostly what I try to keep. Although I, I do like some big animals. So I love the scrubs, but I have the berm because I did want just like a big lazy puppy dog python. And uh, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. I used to keep a lot of, a little bit of everything. Now I find myself just keeping a lot of a few things. So, you know, anytime I see another cyanodon or nigriceps or cyania available, more often than not, I buy it even if I don't need it. And that's a problem. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'm just trying to build really strong groups and large colonies of select species just so that I can not for any kind of uh, like benefit or gain financially, but I want to have higher production because I think that the hobby, I think both the hobby and the natural environments will be better off with more access to captive bred. And so the yeah. more captive bred Boyga I can put out there it would mean, you know, hopefully less that need to be pulled from the wild because that's one type of snake that their habitat's not endangered the way that, you know, a lot of other animals are. Um, they don't have the palm oil fields popping up everywhere, like let's say savanna monitors that are destroying them in the wild, or they don't have hotels popping up or the tourist attractions like the Malagasy cat snakes do in, on Madagascar. And so some stuff like scrub pythons, for example, like they're not threatened in the wild in any way. They stem all the way from Indonesia through New Guinea and into Australia. They've got a very large range. None of that natural environment's really being broken down too much. Now, some of like the, the island localities, uh, Kofiao, um, like Manaquari, some of that stuff is a little bit more disrupted. So that stuff, I'd like to see more captive bred. But let's say we're talking you know, southern scrubs, Marauki's and, and Sarongs and stuff they're not really threatened so seeing that stuff come in on, on import doesn't quite bother me as much uh, and same with the boyga but even then like it may not be threatened now but the reason we don't see kofi out green tree pythons anymore is because they were all collected from the wild they're pretty much all died off in captivity or through importing and now there's no more to collect you know that animal is pretty much just gone and I would hate yeah. to see that happen with the animals that I really enjoy. And I don't, I want those animals to get more popular. I want people to appreciate them more and want to keep them themselves, but I don't want it to happen to the volume of it affecting the populations in the wild. So I think being able to reproduce more captive stuff like that will in the, in the long run end up helping the actual native populations. And if not, then, you know, we kind of end up in a spot like we are with, a lot of people buying the stuff from Madagascar. A lot of that stuff's endangered now, and there are people trying to promote preservation or conservation through preservation and keep it at home and still keep it around. And, and that's really important. It may seem like it's not, but as natural environments dissipate, 
um, being able to keep that species around so that people can one appreciate it, but two further their knowledge on it and and still be able to study. And there's there's so many animals that even rear fanged stuff, uh, you know, beaded lizards are they're used for type two diabetic research and and cures. Yeah. And there's a lot of like venomous snakes that work in that way. And there's a lot of rear fanged venoms that have the same structural compounds as true venomous snakes. Uh, Nigriceps, for example, are very closely comparable to the death adder. And then your your mangrove snake is comparable to the timber rattlesnake. And so if you have venomous compounds that are working in that way with rear fanged stuff, then that's worth further studying because it's just, it's more animals that could potentially not be harmed, but still be able to produce something that becomes almost invaluable to our species. Yeah. So I, I think keeping that stuff around so that we can learn more is super important. Yeah. Back to that part about, uh, uh, you see like a sign, sign on or something like that. And you just, Oh, nine times out of 10 will buy or something like that. Mm-hmm. I've been there at that time at times with some other stuff as well. So I think we should team up and air an ad talk, talk about a uh, morph market addiction. Oh, heck yeah, we should. <laughs> That's like, uh, there's so many people that I feel like as soon as they have some downtime, you know, they, they pop up on Amazon or they pop up on like eBay or everybody has that like little guilty pleasure of shopping online. Yeah. And that's for sure an addiction when it comes to reptile people, because nine times out of 10, I don't even buy anything off of Morph Market, but I like have to, it's like I'm drawn to the tabs and the categories and let's see what's in the other colubrids. Let's see what's in the pythons or the monitors. And and you just sit and browse and look. And then the unfortunate part is, yeah, if you're like me, I see something and just go, damn, I have to have it. (laughs) <laughs> it's yeah. an unplanned, you know, five thousand or five hundred to a thousand dollars that's left the bank account. Yeah, just scroll through and be like, "Oh, I could fit that in there somewhere." I could oh, put that in my collection friend. somewhere. Right. Yeah, or you see a friend uh, or produce something that you didn't necessarily plan on keeping, and then you're kind of congratulatory of them. And then that like excites you as well. And then you want a couple of babies from them because it's your friend that produced them. And I have that problem too. It's like, you know, I don't really want yeah. these, but if I get a pair from you, cause you made them, you know, sure. Yeah. I want a pair. Yeah. It's like, I didn't know this. you want, I wanted this until you offered it, but sure. Right. <laughs> right. It's a, uh, call it like a, if you're, if you're doing right by the animal, it's a responsible impulsiveness because you're going to continue to do right by that animal. I've always been someone to think like, I, I, I've like basically given stuff away that was worth a lot of money to friends because I know that they're going to continue to keep it right. I'm a, if anyone's ever bought from me, they know that I'm kind of a picky seller. So since the boyga are, are more sensitive or since the rat snakes can take a little more work, um when it comes time to let go of stuff i as annoying as it may be uh i am kind of that guy that wants to see like what your what your setups look like or might go dig around on your page for a bit and see how you're keeping things because i don't want to put the effort into reproducing an animal that i respect a lot to see it go downhill or to get that message in two weeks that oh it died 
And so it's okay to be impulsive when you know you're going to keep it well. Um, but I'm the first person to kind of fight maybe an impulsive decision if you're not ready for it. And there's, there's a lot of that, which is unfortunate in the hobby too. There's a lot of like, oh, that's cool. I get questions all the time that are, hey, when will you have the Cyania available? Um, I've never kept Boyga before, but I keep, you know, corn snakes and like I bred bearded dragons. And it's like, I would all due respect, do some research first, or here's here's a few articles or things that either I've published or, or other friends have that will help you learn a little bit more about it. And then come back to me, because um, I'm not necessarily denying a sale to you, but I don't think you're ready for this species. Uh, there's it. We very much live in a hobby that's like a an ooh piece of candy, like impulsiveness. That's like, well, that's pretty and that's cool, or that's rare. I'm gonna buy it because it's pretty, or it's cool, or it's rare. And for rather it be the reason of like this will look awesome on my Instagram if I post this, or my friends will be jealous that I've got one of these. That that's not responsible impulsiveness, right? But yeah. if you're looking to, if you're already working with a species or something, and then you see it one pop up, even if it's impulsive, if you're already working with them and you know you're a good home for that animal, then I think it's okay to be a little more impulsive in that way. Because as much as I hate to say it, like, you know, rather you take it than someone who's just going to kill it. Yeah. Or, yeah, or you know, sell it and then sell it and it gets flipped between five keepers before it dies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like that's one thing that kind of keeps me off of uh, old world rat snakes because I do think they're really cool and I'd love to have them someday. I just don't currently have the setup or the amount of time that they would kind of take from what from what I've heard about their care. So, absolutely. I see a lot of unless, uh, it's, unless it's a hardy bulletproof species like maybe a Russian rat or something like that. Right, Russian rats are or like a king rat. Or yeah, there there are a few really hardy species. I mean, the the Ganyasoma, if you get them in good shape, they're very hardy. But a lot of the Southeast Asiatic stuff lives with all kinds of things in the wild that are dangerous to it. You know, rather they be Indonesian animals that are prone to picking up things like, and this can affect your collection in the long run. But a lot of Indonesian stuff tends to carry like nidovirus. And a lot of the, like the the Taiwanese and the Malaysian stuff, you know, they're a lot of those animals are eating things that are carrying more parasites than maybe other places. And you just get animals that are living in like a more destructive environment for their health. And so you yeah. want to like bring them in, you want to keep them, but you panicure and flagell an animal that's sensitive. More often than not, you know, your your medical treatment will kill the animal before it heals it and helps it. So what do you do? You know, it's kind of a, a double-sided sword. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of those more tropical Asian colubrids, just, just their care and setup just sounds a little bit out of my wheelhouse. So I'm going to wait till I have much better setups for that. <laughs> you know, that's a... Uh... On the, the setup comment, that's one thing, too, that I think is worth noting is a lot of people think that some of these things are harder to breed than they are. Um, a lot of it does come down to setup and some, like, really common 
oopsies that I see with people wanting to breed is I see a lot of Boyega um, being paired in in large racks, uh, or I see them in these you know two foot by two foot by eighteen enclosures, or that are set up in a rack system in a reptile room, or beauty snakes. You know, I see beauty snakes get paired in racks or small enclosures all the time as well. And one, the Boyega, like I've noticed this with both these genus, um, both of them would prefer to have the height ability and to be able to climb. Boyega, for example, like they need a large area for ventilation. They need clean air. They don't do well with stagnant air. So keeping them in something like a rack system to me is so silly. Um, one, they're an arboreal animal that can't climb. And two, like a tub really traps in. Um, there, there are some animals yeah. that do perfectly fine with more stagnant air. But for that type of animal, it, it's no shock to me when I see someone working with trying to breed them and then see that they're being kept that way and wondering why they haven't had production or high production or whatever it is. And like the blue beauties. Um, so I work for a shop in Arizona called Predators Reptile Center, and we have a large shop, but then we also have a an entire huge warehouse. And the warehouse is designed for quarantine on new shipments. It is also a breeding facility. And it's also where we we house and keep a lot of like back stock if we do a large order and don't have all the space in the shop or we take on a surrender or something. And we had some, there's a recent conversation I had. Uh, there's, so the guy that runs our, our facility, his name is Rich Eiley. And if you've been in the hobby long enough, um, Rich Eiley is a pretty big name because he started the salmon line with boa constrictors. He was one of the, the big guys working with emerald tree boas when it first started um he, he's done a lot in the industry this year uh we actually thanks to him reproduced uh sanzenia the madagascar tree boas which no one really is too successful with but he had a or, or we have some sumatran cave dwelling rat snakes and for two years now there's been really no reproduction happening with them and he hasn't been able to figure out why and he and I just had this conversation about when my blue beauties are breeding and locking up, they're locking up like late winter. So like this last year, when I saw the locks happen, it was like late December, which for a lot of snakes, like that's a very odd time to want to like actually breed and reproduce. Uh, and not, not for all of them, you know, like uh, green trees and that stuff like tend to do better copulating in like November and the fall months. But he was kind of keeping them year round. There was no cycling happening. Um, and I was kind of cycling mine, you know, as it got colder, I let them get colder. And what I noticed was every time they were locked up, they were in a, these are big snakes. This is where having space is important too, but you can't breed an animal that's eight, nine feet in a three by two by two setup. You know, that that's 18 feet of animal in, glorified six feet of space so they, they have to yeah. be able to, to run and chase and do all the copulating behavior um but every time that i saw them locked up they were never on the ground and so the way that we had these sumatras set up at the warehouse was like a four four foot by two foot or something by two foot and there was nowhere to climb there was no shelves there was no hammocks no branches no nothing for them to really get up top and every time i saw mine locked 
they were draped across a shelf three feet off the ground with their tails hanging over a branch and locked up right in the you know right in the center of you so there are certain species that like they have to have that space or be able to display those behaviors for anything to happen and if they have it they'll do it for you but uh yeah that's it's just a feeding off of what you said about not wanting to get into them because you don't have a good you don't feel comfortable on your grasp of setting them up with enough space or keeping them the right way that that's smart and that's responsible because even if you were to buy them and for you know say for the time being just try to wing it in whatever way unfortunately like you don't unless you get really lucky you're not going to see a lot of positive uh feedback from that you're you're just going to yeah. be kind of sitting and waiting and wondering and then you're going to get frustrated and then you're going to want to sell them um so that's smart like they're well worth getting into but definitely you know take a little bit of time get them set up right so that way when you bring them home it's it's a cakewalk instead of a struggle yeah yeah uh i feel like the conversation's going well but i have to go to work at two o'clock so probably to cut it off here but yeah uh, man my thanks but uh yeah thanks for coming on uh pleasure talking to you and maybe i'll send you some pictures of my scrubs because that female is she's kind of a weird type id so to speak so uh but thanks for coming on yeah man uh yeah send me some pictures i'm, I'm sure we never met before this but um it's been a pleasure talking with you man you uh i feel like we have a very similar mindset with a lot of this stuff so i imagine we'll probably build a pretty good relationship from here and uh, i appreciate you having me on the show it's been fun to yeah. talk about this stuff i always love talking about this stuff so if you don't don't mind like a little shameless plug um if anyone has any questions on boiga or any of the stuff we talked about today or the scrub pythons um please feel free to reach out i spend most of my time talking to people about this stuff it usually is on instagram if you want to check out the instagram it's arboreal.obscurities uh, you just shoot me a message i'm happy to help rather it's setup feeding care purchasing whatever you're looking for and uh, i do i look forward to being on another episode if you ever want to i had a lot of fun just sitting in and chatting about some cool stuff oh, thank you well until next time thank you all right until next time see you man